Yoon and I recorded most of this discussion 10 days ago, and an additional 10 minutes today discussing the recent Zhao Lijian tweet. I joked in the episode that Americans should start buying Aussie wine, but upon reflection, I actually think it's important that the USO support at a time like this. If any China Talk listener has a personal connection to an Australian winery that has distribution in the U.S., reach out to me, and I'd be happy to run some free advertising for them on an upcoming show. Yun Jiang, welcome to China Talk. Thank you very much for having me. So, who are you? Who am I? Oh, why do you have to ask philosophical questions like this? <laughs> um, so... I am the editor of uh, the China Story blog at the Australian National University in Canberra, in Australia. I am also director of the China Policy Center, which is a nonprofit institute that advances China-related debate in Australia. I've worked in Australian government for eight years until about this time last year. It was on a range of issues, not directly on China, but on a lot of issues to do with China. For example, foreign investment, Commonwealth state relations, as well as economic diplomacy and military diplomacy. Wonderful. All right. So let's get into it. We'll start with a high point. Oh, so back in 2014 is oh, when I was Xi expecting, Jinping, I was, Xi Jinping you know, visited. The, I was like expecting like 1850 or something. Come on. We did we do 2014. <laughs> well, well, Australia and China has a long history of engagement, but just like a bit like in the United States, Australia had a white Australia policy until I think it was the 80s. But before that, there was a lot of Chinese migrants to Australia with the gold rush. I think it's a similar story in the United States as well. But then there was a white Australia policy right from the Federation. So one of the first acts actually passed when Australia became one country was to exclude Asian migration. <laughs> so Immigration Restrictions Act. I think, uh, again, it's very similar to the United States. And that... It was, sorry, what year was that? 1901. Oh, wow. Okay. And that white Australia policy continued until it was only dismantled in the 70s or 80s. And then when the immigration policy of Australia started to focus on skilled migration. That's actually when there was start to have a lot of immigrants coming from China, as well as from Southeast Asia or with chi people from Chinese heritage from Southeast Asia as well. So the Chinese Australian communities in Australia is very diverse. You have more recent students and migrants from mainland China, but you also have people from Hong Kong, from Taiwan, and people from Southeast Asia, and people that have stayed in Australia for many generations, or you have recent migrants. So it's a very diverse community. So that's a, the community aspect. The, but then there's a political aspect. The relationship, I think next year, I think it was the next year or the year after, 2021, I think, is the 50th anniversary of the establishment of relationship between the People's Republic of China and Australia. So it's a big anniversary, but then right now we have this, all these tensions <laughs> at the time. So I'm not sure how that will be commemorated. So the, the, the relationship between China and Australia in recent decades has mostly been focused on economic aspects. So China is Australia's biggest trading partner and has been for many years. We import. How, how much larger than the second largest? I'm not sure. I'll have to check. I think second largest was is Japan, I believe. 
China imports $90 billion of Australian exports, uh, which comprises 33% of total Australian exports. And next up is Japan, only has 9%. So a pretty big drop off. In the US, poor little America, um, poor little America, only at 10 billion with 3.7%. But hey, America enjoys a trade surplus with Australia. So you should really be thankful to us. Okay, so a big, big important trading partner and has been for a long time now. Yeah, for, for, for quite a while now, both imports and exports. Sure. And that is the one aspect of the relationship that is um, very important to Australian sure. politicians. Let's take it to 2014 then. <laughs> now that we got all that history out of the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so 2014, 2014 was a high point of the bilateral relationship. Australia was hosting the G20 and Xi Jinping came to Australia oh, wow. and actually addressed the special joint sitting, sitting of the parliament. So you have senators and so upper house as the senators and the lower house is the members of representatives. So you have those people all sitting, listening to Xi Jinping, addressing them in yeah. the parliament. It, it, from the standpoint from now, it seems to be... You can't believe that, but that's what happened in 2014. Xi Jinping has actually visited all the states yeah. and territories of Australia. Not as many as the United States, but it's still an impressive record. We signed the free trade agreement, the chapter, and yeah. also the, relation, the bilateral relationship was upgraded to comprehensive strategic partnership, which is basically the highest you can get apart from a formal alliance. So that was a high point of the relationship. The prime minister and all the politicians okay. were quite positive about the bilateral relationship. I think the only party that was a little bit wary was the Greens. I think it was because of human rights. But basically, everyone was very positive about the relationship. Okay. Liberal was in power. Okay. Uh, sorry. So yes, there's mostly two parties, the coalition, which is the Liberal National Party and the Labour. So at that time, it was a coalition that was in power. Just like now. Okay. Which, which is right of centre. Yes, of centre. And it is a current um, ruling government in Australia as well. It's the same party. Okay. Okay. So what happened starting in 2017? Ah, 2017 and 2018, that is a turning point for the relationship. So in late 2017, Australia introduced the foreign interference legislation. Now, the foreign interference legislation itself is country neutral. It doesn't mention any country. But when it was introduced and the debate and rhetoric around its introduction was very much focused on China. Malcolm Turnbull, the prime minister at the time, which is also Liberal National Party, even spoke in Mandarin saying basically that Australian people have stood up, which is echoing what Mao Zedong supposedly to have said. And I think that that is a perceived, probably perceived as a quite of a slight to the People's Republic of China. You quote Xi to Xi's face, he's not going to be super happy about it, even if you're even if you're the likes of Ma Yun. So yeah, not the, the slyest rhetorical tactic, to be sure. What was the motivation at the time around passing this bill in the first place? The motivation around time which is that there are there's increased concerns about China's foreign interference activities 
in Australia. Specifically, at that, around at that time, there was a lot of concerns about bribery of politicians, influencing of politicians. There was a f- case of Huang Xiaomo and Sam Diastari basically accepting bribes and then also speaking on issues as contrary to the party position. So there was a lot of concerns around that. And then Clive Hamilton's book on silent, called Silent Invasion, was also built around that kind of issue as well. Okay, and then in early 2018, there was a Huawei decision that was also quite important. So Huawei was actually blocked from Australia's national broadband network in 2012. But at that time, it didn't create much of a diplomatic incidence. But in 2018, when Huawei was blocked from the 5G network, it did create a lot of tension between the two countries. I think there were two reasons. One is that Australia was quite public about the ban and that the fact that the risks was about China as a country, basically. Um, and the second one is that Australia then was quite forward-leaning about trying to get other countries to also ban Huawei. So those two decisions, I think, was basically the turning point in the relationship. And since then, I remember from then on, basically, Australia has been put into a deep freeze, as people have said. It was difficult for Australian ministers to get meetings with Chinese counterparts. And then it came 2020. (laughs) One, One question before we come up to the present day. To what extent is this driven by internal Australian dynamics versus the impact of, of Trump and the trade war and sort of like the, the, the U.S. kind of pushing its allies to rethink their relationships with China? You're asking a very good question, and I think that might need a very full response. In part, the China-Australian relationship is driven by the U.S.-China relationship as well. Australia is an ally of the United States. We have, as former Prime Minister said, a hundred years of mateship. Uh, We have followed the United States in pretty much every conflict, every major conflict. The alliance with the United States is very important to Australia. And in one sense, the Australian government, especially the Liberal National Coalition government, which is probably Caesar Alliance as more important than maybe the Labour government, wants to be seen as quite close to the United States. And the tension between the United States and China does definitely not doesn't help yeah. the bilateral relationship between Australia and China either. But in a sense, Australia is even more forward-leaning than the United States. We can see that with the Huawei decision, which Australia, I think, made that decision even before the United States did. So that is one part of the tension. And then another one, as you, I'm sure you will know, that there is the intersection of domestic politics and foreign policy as well, which if you live in a country, you're probably more aware. It, this also happens in China, but because we are outside the country, we see China as a one monolith. We don't tend to think about its internal mechanisms. But from Australia's standpoint, they're in the Liberal National Government, particularly in this one, the 
Minister for Home Affairs has much more power. In fact, it was it was created. The portfolio was created so that it had okay. it. It did, became, it did gather more power. So in that sense, the national security concerns have become more dominant in domestic politics as well, as opposed to, say, for example, economic concerns. And that you can see that played into domestic discourse in the public. Foreign interference, for example, was not really talked about until recent years. But now it seems that national security concerns has taken a more dominant in the public discourse compared to, say, trade and economics. I guess coming back to the question I asked earlier, is this also a function of Chinese influence operations becoming more aggressive and more heavy handed? It's possible. Every country has looked to influence other countries, there are differences between legitimate influence mm-hmm. and illegitimate interference activities. And interference activities is defined in the legislation as covert, coercive, what's it? Corrupting. That's right. Three C's. Um, so the influence is legitimate and a lot of, in fact, a lot of Unite Front work is influence work rather than interference work. But in the public debate, there is seems to be a confusion between the two. And any influence now is seen from China is seen as illegitimate. Now, interference by nature is hard to detect since the passage of the foreign interference legislation so far, we only have one charge, one person being charged under it, and that's quite recent. And there is no details about exactly what he has done either. So in that sense, it's hard to tell whether China is now more active in foreign interference in Australia. It is quite possible it is. We, China has become more powerful. It seems to be more interested in getting other countries to be aligned to its interests. So I think it is, from that standpoint, it's possible that foreign interference activities have increased, but then we don't have any evidence, at least in public yet. So coming to 2020, I guess we should start with COVID. (laughs) Yeah, let's start with COVID. There are a few issues in 2020. The Australian government's uh, push to have an independent investigation into the origin of COVID seems to be a quite significant one in the bilateral relationship. So stepping back from that, what was going on there? Why did this become such a, something that the Australians were so focused on doing? It is a little bit a mystery because apparently not all the, I think from recent Senate inquiries, it appears that not every department or not all bureaucracies understand what's happening. It does not seem to be a well-formed policy view. Like it's not something that has, you know, considered by different departments, gone through a cabinet, everyone agrees. It did did seem to have come out of nowhere. And also the fact that other countries did not seem to have really been on board Mm -hmm. either. It is a bit strange. So it's very strange where they come from. Now, before all that, there was a lot of media 
speculations as well about origin of COVID, including there was a document handed over to the media by the United States Embassy, hmm. casting doubts about the origin of COVID. So all these things is it seems to be very strange, all the surrounding circumstances. And then Australia came out and wanted an independent investigation of COVID. Now, the investigation itself is fine. Other countries have pushed for it too, including the European Union. They had proposed a WHO proposal. But what Australia seemed to have proposed is went far beyond that. It wanted more power. For, WH, for WHO, almost like a weapons inspections power is one that was raised. Mm-hmm. So that seems to, they have, Australia have gone beyond what other um, countries have asked for. And it seems to be very targeted at China. And so from China's perspective, it was not happy about what Australia, then what? And then the ambassador had an interview with one of the newspapers here. He warned Australia that the tensions in the relationship will not be good for trade. It, it can be seen as a warning or a threat. Uh, basically, he named a few things like wine, tourism, and uh, things that actually eventuate that also the Chinese government did take actions against Australia. So how did the Australian politicians take to this? Inter- the Australian politicians, obviously, you can't seeing us backing down in the face of uh, coercion. So they were very, like now, all politicians are very, what's the word? I think Kevin Rudd said hairy chest, right? (laughs) Oh my God. Hairy chested. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) I am not very good with uh, analogies and imageries personally. But oh, haven't even gone to the issue of Wolverines yet, but uh, we'll get to that later. Of course, of the summer, also another sort of big event was China grabbing Australian journals. So that, that one's very interesting. Okay, so first thing that happened is that Australian journalists uh, who works for CGTN, the Chinese state broadcaster, Chen Lei, got detained for, and later emerged was for national security reasons. And we still don't know. And this is mid, and this is mid August we're in now. Mm. So we don't really know what happened there. And then uh, I think only maybe a week or so later, there was two Australian journalists working for Australian newspapers that was hurried into the Australian embassy. What happened was they received a knock from the Chinese government. Basically, they want to question them about certain issues. And they feel this seems to be quite serious. And I think on the back of the Australian embassy's advice, they received protection at the embassy. So they were actually Mm -hmm. subsequently interviewed by the Chinese government at the embassy. And they were allowed to leave. But initially, they were threatened that unless you comply with us, you are not allowed to leave. And obviously, at that time, that would be quite um, quite scary. So then they were allowed to leave. Yeah. And that, and th- this, I imagine, caused, caused a stir domestically. Yes, very much, of course. But quite interestingly, a few weeks later, it then emerged that when Australia... When the um, Australian Federal Police and the Security Intelligence Organization raided one of the Australian politicians called 
muscle man, I think, in connection with a possible foreign interference investigation. They also raided two Chinese journalists in Australia, but it wasn't publicized at the time. And apparently, they you know took away their phones and laptops, and also told them to keep quiet. And then those two Chinese journalists left Australia. It was definitely before the two Australian media gotcha. journalists. Yeah, so it was actually it appears that the two the questioning and I guess threat to the two Australian journalists was possibly. A retaliation for what、uh, what Australian government did to the Chinese journalists. Got it. So starting、um, <laughs> uh, September first, we, we have a headline: Chi- China bans barley import. Harmful weeds were in the cargo. We have a kickoff of of what's now, I guess, a sort of one way trade war. So barley was the first, and then came beef, and then all the others followed. At first, it wasn't really. Certain what's going on. There was a lot of speculation whether this was economic form of economic coercion, or was it more of a purely economic coercion in terms of like they are using economic instruments for geopolitical ends, for geopolitical purpose, or whether it was a purely economics. For example, they were unhappy with Australia's、yeah. anti-dumping actions. So that will be purely economics, but then I think it was quite obvious after a while that it was economic statecraft that China basically is using economics,、gotcha. using trade, to send a political message to Australia. Which, yeah, it's, it's quite strange what China is trying to achieve, though. When you do something like that, obviously you have an end goal in mind, hopefully. Supposedly, I mean, there's a few theories. One is that it's targeted Australia. Two is that it's targeted other countries, not Australia. And three is targeted at domestic audiences. Yeah. So there could be a lot of、uh, motivations for doing such things. So Yun, what was your experience giving giving testimony to Parliament? Okay, so I put in a recent submission to a Senate inquiry into issues facing diaspora communities. And my submission dealt with issues facing diaspora communities. Specifically, one is on coercion from the Chinese government. So, where individuals in Australia, their families may be pressured from the Chinese government in order for them to stay silent. And the second one was the increased suspicion on Chinese Australians in Australia due to the foreign interference debate. So we're seeing in the media and a lot of public debates that people are basically saying certain people because of their connection to because perhaps because they have met a United Front official or because they belong to a community group that is perhaps、uh, aligned what seem to be a United Front aligned group. That then their loyalties are being questioned. That they are being under suspicion of foreign interference. My submission mostly dealt with that, and I got invited by the Senate committee to appear in the inquiry. Now, usually when you appear in the Senate inquiry, you go one by one. But interestingly, this time they asked me to appear along with two other witnesses. 
supposedly because of time constraints. So I, it was by video, sorry, not video, it was by teleconferencing. So all three of us showed up by teleconferencing to the set inquiry. And I made my opening statement, which was again focused on foreign interference and suspicions on Chinese Australians and the fact that we should not ask Chinese Australians to, for example, take a political stance when we don't ask other Australians to do so. One of the senators, Senator Eric Abetz, Liberal National from Tasmania, an island in the south of Australia, a very beautiful. And incidentally, uh, Xi Jinping visited Tasmania in 2014, and Senator Betts was very positive about Xi Jinping's visit. Okay, so he's from the Liberal National Government, Liberal National Party, which is a ruling party in Australia at the moment. But uh, he's not a minister. He's one of the members of the Interparliamentary Committee on China as well. Um, so he asked each of us to publicly condemn the Chinese Communist Party dictatorship. That's in his words. So then each of us gave a response. So all three of us are Australians of Chinese background. So one of one of us was born in Australia, one was born in Hong Kong, and I was born in mainland. And we all had different backgrounds as well. So our submissions deal with three separate issues as well. We don't we didn't talk about the same thing either. So it was quite strange to put us all together in one 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 hearing mm-hmm. to begin with and then we were asked to condemn public condemn the Chinese dictatorship then in, then i realized um later on that he didn't ask that from anyone else i was obviously very shocked uh this inquiry was not on chinese communist party at all or china it has nothing to do one of the submissions had nothing to do on china it didn't not mention china or chinese it was inquiring on issues facing diaspora communities. Mm-hmm. So I was very shocked to be asked that question because I thought it was quite irrelevant to the inquiry. Um, and also seems to be very strange to ask where, where none of us were really uh, yeah. public office holders. I'm the, a person, I'm, not, I'm no longer in government. So it's very strange to be asked that question. <laughs> It was very shocked, so I said I gave a response. But then I also said, as I said in my opening statement, you should not be asking Chinese Australians to take a political view when you don't ask the same from other Australians. Yeah, okay. I mean, I it's literally coming exactly what you were trying to not get at, and it was the perfect <laughs> example of a re, uh, resetting trend in domestic politics. Exactly, exactly. I, I just feel like, well, did I just waste my five minutes talking about this exact issue and you just come out and then do exactly what I said you should not do? <laughs> and then I feel like, what, what the hell am I doing here? It's quite clear that they're not interested in my views on foreign interference. They didn't ask any question about foreign interference. The only thing they seem to be interested in is my view of the Chinese Communist Party. It is it, it, quite upsetting that yeah. It just feels like I was called there purely so sure. that they can make a political domestic point. Was there, you know, in the U.S. we had McCarthyism and, and blacklists and, and this kind of like communist fear, mm-hmm. um, which wasn't quite as ethnic. I mean, it was a little bit of sort of like the Jews are communists, but it's it was a little it, it wasn't like we have a fifth column 
I mean, I guess it was in the 30s with the Germans and then with the Japanese. So I take this back. But I, I'm curious if in um, if in Australia uh, there is sort of a history of this of this strain of thinking, or, or whether this is a this is a new thing. And um, in the Cold War, uh, there wasn't this sort of undercurrent in Australian politics. Actually, in the United States, there was uh, in during the Cold War. If you remember that, some Chinese scientists were pushed out of the United States. Because of suspicion as well, so history repeats itself. In Australia, there's racism itself. Obviously, has historically been a feature of Australian society when we talk about white Australia policy. Now that we see white Australia policy is quite racist, obviously, but. At the time, white Australia policy, the, the official government position was that white Australia policy was not a racist policy. It was purely economics. There, I think there's definitely an undercurrent of racism. And we know that structural racism exists as well. But I guess the, the, but the I guess like, I guess not just the racism, but like the fear of foreign influence manifesting itself in domestic politics. Was that, is that something that's happened to this to this extent ever before? So Australia also had internment camps for Japanese and Germans during Second World War as well. So coming back to the Wolverines, who are they and what's their deal? So Wolverine is a group of parliamentarians that is, they're very willing to publicly um, stand up to China. I think that's how they will put it, to stand up to the interference as well as other issues on China. So, for example, they've been talking about human rights atrocities committed um, in the PRC by the Chinese government or by the Chinese Communist Party, um, but also basically any issue to do with China, they are quite come out quite publicly about um, I think Andrew Hasty is probably one of the more well-known members. So basically, there are just a group of parliamentarians who gotcha. wants to be public about countering China. So it's, I guess, it's, I found one sense, it's a bit unusual in the Australian system because in the Australian system, you have the Westminster system. So we have the ministers, which are also parliamentarians. Yeah. And then we have a cabinet minister, which are usually the ones that make the most decisions for the government. And then we have a party. So the party disciplines are usually stronger in Australia than, for example, in the United States. So usually the politicians within the party mm -hmm. do not usually, for example, come out against the party position. And the backbenchers do not usually have a very high profile as a result. So it's quite unusual to have a group that comes out so publicly on especially a foreign affair issue as well um, from a group of backbenchers. It's, um, it's unusual in the system. So not quite at the level of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, but uh, the Chinese government came out with 14 complaints that they had about Australian behavior. And how do you factor it? Uh, yeah, I was told I was featured. Well, I mean, not by name, right? Oh, so here we go. 14 grievances. Uh, we got foreign and uh, foreign investment decisions. We got Huawei, foreign interference legislation, politicization and stigmatization of normal exchanges, 
Um, excessive wanton interference in uh, Xinjiang, uh, Xiangang, and, and Taiwan. The first uh, country who's not connected uh, directly to the South China Sea to talk about the South China Sea, siding with the U.S.'s anti-China campaign to spread disinformation about COVID-19. Um, new legislation uh, aimed at uh, torpedoing participation in BNR and the Belt and Road Initiative providing funding to anti-China think tanks for spreading untrue reports, peddling lies about Xinjiang and so-called China infiltration, uh, the early dawn sorts of Chinese journalists, thinly veiled allegations against China on cyber attacks, um, the outrageous condemnation of the governing party of, of China by MPs and racist attacks against Chinese or Asian people, and, and last but not least, an unfriendly or antagonistic report by on China by media, poisoning the atmosphere of bilateral relations. So we've covered a fair amount of these in our conversation over the past 45 minutes. Um, I'm surprised, I'm surprised, frankly, like America hasn't started or like the, or like the super anti-China um, senators haven't started a like, let's all drink Australian wine campaign. I feel like that's, that's in the offing. You should. <laughs> that's the thing, right? That's the thing. Um, look, we follow you. <laughs> We don't really follow you, but I'm just saying that they're, they're from perception from Australia. Let's say if I, from Australia's perspective, we, you know, we're so close to the United States. We go with the United States on many issues. And then when China punishes us, you guys don't even buy up our yeah, stuff. I think that's totally fair. Disappointing. So there are, it's interesting because there is a bit of a floor um, in that iron ore in particular seems to be something that China can't really do without. Um Ah, for now, but I think they, they are going to look to, for example, so a few things they're doing to reduce reliance on Australia as well. Now, we talk about trade diversification from Australia, but really China also does trade diversification so that it can become less reliant on Australia. A few things they do, one is that they make investment in other countries to um, in, in mining so that it can secure supplies from other countries. And the second thing is they are moving to restructuring their economy so that it may mm -hmm. be less reliant on imported energy sources, including from Australia. And that's one of their net uh, zero target as well. Everything's connected. Fitting. So, oh yeah, oh yeah. So, so Yun, where, where do we go from here? I feel like the, I feel like, just domestic, as someone who knows nothing about Australian politics, once you have this reign, it's very hard for folks in a democracy to to back down. Um. Yeah. No. What the Australia can do is to look at what other countries have done when faced with this issue. So we know that Japan, South Korea, both have been receiving the same treatment mm -hmm. from China in the past. So we can learn a few lessons from what they've done. And in terms also in terms of managing the bilateral relationship more broadly, I think Australia should do less talking and more listening. <laughs> when we're meeting with countries in Southeast Asia or in or Japan or South Korea and really They've been dealing with this living next to a great power for much longer than Australia has. So I think they have a lot of experiences to share. And I think Australia should really trying to learn from them. I think at the moment, uh, Australia is a little bit arrogant 
in that we like to go to these countries and say, oh, warn them about the threat of China. But really, they've been living with China for much longer than us. I think they probably know more about how to deal with it than us. So I think we should turn around and be more humble and learn from other countries in the So that's one thing. And the second thing is, of course, just like the United States and other countries, I am I always push for multilateralism. I think we should uh, definitely work with other countries to dealing with the challenges that is posed by China. I think one important thing when we're working with, so we're not like in the United States where it's a great power. It can afford to be unilateral. Australia is a middle power. We need to work with other countries in the region in order to ensure that what happens in the international um, sphere is in our interest. So that is the one thing that is done at global level. At a domestic level, I think there needs to be a more of an understanding of China, for one, both from national security and from economic and from all different aspects, point of view. So the Australian government, the bureaucrats really need to become more Asia literate, not just China literate, but also Asia literate. So you have a more understanding of the issues facing our region. But also we need to have a better framework to connect national security, foreign policy, domestic policy, economics together. Right now it's a little bit of siloed. You've got departments that working on Economics departments are working on national security, but they don't really understand issues that each the other departments are working. I think one thing, so I I do want to mention is so the public debate is very much focused on problem, but for policymakers, when we want to find solutions, just because there's a problem doesn't mean that any solution to address that problem is acceptable or ideal. Okay, my mom is a doctor, so I like to use medical analogies. Now, if you have presented with the symptoms, you first have to make a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And even when you made a diagnosis, then you have to decide on the treatment, the best course of treatment. So even though we know that there are challenges in the bilateral relationship, there are challenges with China, dealing with China, doesn't mean that any policy instrument to counter that is a good one. So I think we need to separate that fact that there's a problem to, you know, what is the best policy response? There are two different questions. Profound and uh, a lesson on which I think American policymakers should meditate as well. Not to mention Chinese policymakers uh, for whom this whole, um, you know, this whole episode (laughs) seems really, really, really counterproductive. Yeah, yeah. It is a very complex and tricky issue because a lot of issues is not just foreign policy. It's an intersection of foreign and domestic policies and politics. (laughs) Um, It is very difficult. And what we're seeing also is that governments uh, appears to be using the threats and challenges posed by China to increase the power of national security agencies and and that may have implications for civil liberties as mm. well. Um yeah, I mean it's it just thinking about the China of the 
like once you use this, it's it ends up kind of poisoning the well for a very, very long time, right? And this, uh, you know, these tariffs are going to be a part of Australian political memory for decades, likely. Um, and the steps that you mentioned of, um, you know, folks trying to diversify and, and, and look more to other countries in Southeast Asia, you know, clearly she has his reasons um, for... Uh, for doing this he's not an idiot right but um, but at the same time if you're only looking at the foreign policy sense mm-hmm. there's very little good that could possibly come out of come out of this for um for beijing yeah i guess from xi's perspective like most countries they are more concerned about domestic politics than foreign policies and to um that australia china has already lost australia it basically doesn't really make any effort in improving the relationship anymore so maybe perhaps what it is doing is um using australia as an example for other countries and it is it's one possible explanation at least we recorded our last conversation i guess a week and a half ago and a lot has happened since then. Why don't you catch us up on the latest developments? Oh, I, I, I think since last time we spoke, uh, China imposed um, anti-dumping tariffs on Australian wine exports. And then Australia um, decided to take China to the World Trade Organization on the anti-dumping tariffs on Bali. And the mo- most recent event, which got a lot of media attention, was a tweet of an offensive image by um, China's foreign ministry spokesperson Zhao Lijian. So what was what was this tweet and, and what response did it engender? So the, the offensive mi- image that um, the foreign ministry spokesperson Zhao Lijian tweeted was an image of an Australian soldier holding a knife to an Afghan child's throat. The image itself uh, was created by a Chinese artist. It has obviously been digitally created or altered um, after fashion of like a satirical cartoons, but they're more realistic. So there was a lot of uh, media about, um, you know, the fact that whether it's a fake image or not, but the issue is not whether it's an image is real or not. Um, we know that if Zhao Lijian had tweeted a real photo of Australian soldiers committing war crimes, um, as had been shown on Australian national TV previously, there would still be the same controversy. So a bit of a background on this whole um, Afghan war crime business. The tweet came after a report found um, evidence of possible war crimes committed by the Australian Defence Force in Afghanistan. The report and its recommendations have become quite controversial domestically in Australia, even before Zhao's tweet. And I'm not sure if Zhao was aware of the domestic sensitivity of the issue. So basically, um, the chief of defense force, after the report came out, said um, that defense will accept all the recommendations. But then the prime minister came out later and said, uh, we'll have to wait and see. So there is a public um, different positions between the prime minister and the chief of defense force. Um, so that was quite unusual and it caused a lot of controversy domestically. 
And then Zhao's tweet came out, and the prime minister arranged a almost an, a press conference immediately, basically saying how much the Australians、um, are outraged by the tweet. But from a domestic angle, and that's something that hasn't really been explored a lot in international reporting, is that the prime ministers haven't actually used such a strong language. For the actual crimes committed by the Australian Defence Force, so domestically it's it's a little bit strange for the prime minister to come out so strongly against Charles Tweed when you know a more serious crime, possible war crimes,、um, he didn't have the same reaction. Now,、yeah. um, in the international angle, we know that. I guess a frequent listener of Chan Tong will know that Zhao Lijian, a foreign ministry spokesperson, deputy director of the foreign ministry. Not very senior, you know, not a head of the government, head of state, not even a lead, a head of the ministry,、uh, but he's very famous on Twitter. <laughs> He is、um, an example of the so-called warfaria diplomacy tactics by China. Warfaria diplomacy is a term used to describe the newly assertive and combative style of Chinese diplomats. You know, until quite recently, Chinese diplomats have been known to be quite conservative and mild-mannered. But Zhao is deliberately provocative and inflammatory on Twitter, and he has a history.、Uh, last year, he got into a heated argument with Susan Rice, former U.S. National Security Advisor, and this year he shared a conspiracy theory from a non-conspiracy website that COVID was originally in the United States, and that again got a lot of、uh, criticisms. But again, he refused to back down. So obviously,、um, he is not going to apologize for this specific tweet that is offensive to Australia, or hurt Australia,、uh, Australian people's feelings, as、uh, if you would use a Chinese government's term. But、um, it's quite clear, though, that、um, his behavior received support from top officials、um, within the Chinese government, and his um, antics um, enjoy some widespread support among nationalists online as well. What's going on in Zhao Lijian's head? Well, I think Zhao Lijian.、Um, well, first,、um, China-Australian relationship has been deteriorating, well, since 2017, but、um, especially this year, throughout this year, and、um, China has been using a lot of tactics to、uh, pressure Australia. And、uh, Zhao's behavior just to provoke a reaction in Australia, and.、Um, I guess if, in that sense, he succeeded. That、uh, the the Australian Prime Minister、um, held a press conference almost immediately. So that was a very strong reaction、um, compared to, say, for example, a, maybe a normal、um, course of reaction would be for the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to、um, rebuke the diplomat, right? But、um, the Prime Minister came out so strongly, perhaps out of a, you know domestic imperative as well. He provoked a reaction, and that's basically what he does. He he's almost like a troll on Twitter. Twitter is banned in China, so it is exclusively focused at foreign audiences. And he his intention is to provoke a reaction, to be provocative, and to be insulting. And he、um, achieved that aim. What should the prime minister have done?、Um, from my personal perspective,、um, I think the prime minister. Being a lot more senior、um, than Zhao Lijian,、um, she probably shouldn't give us so much attention. It is offensive to 
most Australian people, I agree. But he didn't have to escalate this so much. He could have,、um, you know, the, he could have ordered the secretary of the Department of、um, Foreign Affairs and Trade to make a statement、um, to have a press release rather than arranging a press conference、um, immediately after the fact. I think、um, that basically escalated the issue, and it gave the issue much more oxygen and attention. When then you deserved to be honest, because when you think about it from Australia's national interest perspective, the offensive tweet itself, yes, it 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 does hurt a little bit to to some section of the community, but Chinese government's other actions, egregious actions, is much more detrimental to the Australian national interest. For example, its trade actions is significant for Australia's economy. So those issues are now strangely being overlooked in favor of this、um, tweet episode. And more broadly, Yun, what's the best response for Western countries when kind of having to deal with this sort of whataboutism? Ah,、uh, you're talking about how、um, Chinese government like to point out other countries' human rights failings. Well, <laughs> I think one that you know、um, as Uh, some、um, politicians have pointed out, we need to first acknowledge that there are failings in Australia, oh, in, in、uh, human rights in、uh, Western democracies. But、uh, we are doing our best to be transparent and to change our policies and behaviors、um, to improve human rights situations in our countries. And contrast that with China, which is、um, has been repeatedly denying that it has done anything wrong.、Um, so I think the the right way to go about it is to acknowledge our failings, but to contrast that with China.、Um, I think the wrong way to go about it is to deny that we have human rights problems to begin with. Jun, thanks so much. Thank you. Red smoky sky. You should.